Welcome to Easy Writers, airing 6 to 7 p.m. on Sunday evenings. Join us as we share our stories and poems and a few surprises. Here are Carrie and a special guest. Hello, everyone. You're back with Easy Writers, and I have a wonderful guest today, Carl Seaver, and he's going to share his novel that he has written recently, and we're going to ask him questions about his book launch, his publishing, his technique, and we're going to have a lot of fun. Carl, welcome to Easy Writers. Thank you for having me. So this show did get preempted by Bohemian Nights, and by the time you hear it, the Barnes & Noble reading and book signing will be over. But the book is still going to be there, and Carl will have some other events in the future. Just go to his website, cfseaver, at comcast.net. Thanks. We have interesting sidelights for you, and one of them is I'm going to start with what happened at your book launch party. Well, that was quite an evening. I was absolutely blown away by how many people showed up. I had expected perhaps maybe a dozen or so of my friends. Instead, I was blessed by having, I think the count was around 70 people, and that was wonderful to see. But it also came with a, a tad of nervousness on my part. I thought there'd be a few people. Actually, there was a lot of people there, which made me cringe a little bit with how I was going to speak, how I was going to perform, actually how I was even going to read. But anyway, it came off very well, and I am so happy for Judy Brenneman, who is my writing coach and friend who helped babysit me and see me through. <laughs> she even made me a cake. And that cake not only was beautiful, it was delicious. That was an amazing evening. I'm so glad I got invited. And listeners, I did not get invited by Carl. I didn't know Carl. I got invited by Judy's husband, who just happened to be sitting beside me at a computer club. (laughs) Hmm. So that was really fun because we started talking, and we were talking about all the different things we did, and And he said, oh, you might be interested in this book launch party. And he took my phone and wrote me a note about it. And I showed up, and here we are. So I would like to ask you a little bit about how your two wonderful grown children happened to get there. Uh, That was the highlight of my evening. Uh, As nervous as I was, and I was quaking, when I saw... My son there, he came all the way up from Denver. Actually, he had just gotten back to town from a business trip in L.A. I didn't think he'd be anywhere close to Fort Collins, but he showed up with his smiling, beaming face, and what a delight that was. My daughter, Stephanie, uh, totally took me by surprise because she lives in Alaska. (laughs) McCarthy, Alaska, population 42. Wow. Anyway, she spent five years there, and we are very close, Stephanie and I, and she's helped me along this whole process of keeping me on the straight and narrow, keeping me motivated. Anyway, when she showed up, that certainly made my evening, and all of a sudden, most of the butterflies disappeared, but then I got to thinking, I better not mess up in front of my kids, so (laughs) so my nerves got uh, a little shaken again, but what a great evening. 
And it was so neat to see the connections between Carl and his kids. It was really, that was part of the delight for everyone there. And, you know, that is true about in your siblings or your children or your parents watching you do something. There's even statistics about that in sports that high school kids whose families are in the stands don't do as well as when they're not there. (laughs) I certainly can understand that. Yeah. So did you, I'm going to go way back and ask you, did you think about enjoying writing when you were young? Oh, no. No, I never thought about writing when I was young. I was too busy. uh, Well, when I was young, I was a kid. And then as a young adult, I was struggling to uh, be a success, whatever, however you want to define that. I was in business for many, many years as a teacher. I am a sluffer of skins. Mm. Uh, I always believe that every 10 years ago, a person needs to repot himself mm. like a plant, and uh, it gets new leaves. It starts to grow again. A snake uh, grows its skin. It sloughs its skin. And I outgrew my business. I sloughed it off. I outgrew teaching, sloughed it off, and ended up trying to write this book, which took 10 years, so I spent a lot of time at that. Anyway, I find myself here, and after writing this book, I know I'm the luckiest guy on the planet to be able to have done this because not many people get the privilege of having someone judge their work and say it's good enough to put covers on it. But that being said, I think it might be time for me to slough my skin again. Mm. I don't know where that'll take me. Perhaps photography, looking at writing another book. It certainly has to be easier than the one I just tried to write. Yeah. Well, you know so much more now. Well, yeah, I do. And I assume that would cut down on the time it would take me to produce another book. But if you ask me, writing is uh, it's not a fun thing. It's a difficult thing. And I remember writing, wondering why I can't write for eight hours a day. I used to be able to be, I used to be a workaholic. I should be able to write eight hours a day. I found myself after a couple hours totally exhausted, just yep. totally drained. And that was a surprise to me. So I think if I were to write another book, I would have that experience as a background. But I do know that it would be difficult because I think writing is a difficult thing to do. I have some uh, desire to write another one, not another totally a different story, but perhaps, this is just perhaps, uh, maybe I could write uh, a prequel which would explain why the main characters are the way they are, how they got to meet one another, why there is such an attachment or an affinity toward one another. And what is the connection of the main characters to their past? And I think that might help me explain how and why I wrote this book. Mm. So a new book would, a new story, a prequel, would explain what was on my mind when I wrote the first one. Well, that's certainly an interesting way to do it because the people that have read Alphonse would definitely want to read that. It would be say, I I would love to hear that piece. In fact, I was at a science fiction convention, and I think it was Frank Herbert's son 
who wrote Dune. He was going to write a prequel to his dad's book. Well, the son was. Yeah. And he <laughs> said, well, my friend and I, we go climb up the mountains. We go take hikes in the Rockies. And we talk about, well, what could we put in the prequel? And we've talked so much that we know we've got one. <laughs> <laughs> the trick is to put it on paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, that was fun to meet them and hear them do something like that. And there's an author in town who writes Star Wars novels of the minor characters. Wow. And builds and fleshes out their stories that uh -huh. weren't in any movies. But it's Lando Calrissian, for instance. Oh, wow. And all his stories. Uh-huh. Sweet. So, yeah, that's fun stuff. So I think your idea has great merit. We'll see what happens. I'm not convinced that I have the energy or the desire to do that, but... It would make uh, perfect sense if I were to write another novel. It would be as a prequel to Alphonse. I would like to hear about your photography ideas. And I know you have a background in photography already, and you had a studio business. Right. And uh, what are you thinking of doing with photography next? Well, I'm not quite sure what I want to do next with photography. I, I do know how I started out. I was a teacher decades ago, and I taught journalism and English lit and photography. Mm. And the thing I really enjoyed about photography was the excitement, the absolute bliss that a bunch of eighth graders, <laughs> yeah. eighth graders, mind you, wow. uh, the kick in the can they got when they saw, this is prior to the digital age, the old-fashioned way, they got so excited when they saw the paper that they just exposed through an enlarger as they watched it come up in the developer, as it gradually appeared, they got more and more excited and they just wanted to keep doing it over and over and over again. And I just thought that was a kick in the can. That's just a minor thing with, with photography, but I've always enjoyed the visual image. I don't know if a person's visual or his auditory or kinetic or whatever he is, but I'm a visual person. Mm -hmm. To the extent that after my teaching sloughed that skin, so to speak, <laughs> I went uh, into business with a partner, and we formed a company called Fine Print. Fine Print was an exclusive wholesale photo lab. This is back before the digital age where everything's pretty slick. You've got Photoshop. You can do all kinds of tricks. Back then, you had none of that, and I was the, uh, I was the darkroom man. For 10 years, sensory deprivation, mind you, hmm. for 10 years in the darkroom, I, <laughs> I was fortunate enough to print for most of the major nature photographers in the country at the time. Wow. Yes, people like Tom Mangelson, Art Wolf, uh, those people, you still see their photos at DIA and other airports. Mm. But I was blessed to be able to uh, print for those folks. And they gave me, thank God, they gave me the license at the time to make their print better than what they had taken it. Nowadays, you can use Photoshop and make it whatever you want, kind of a fake picture, so to speak. Yeah. But back then, the only tools you really had were burning and dodging, and that's the way you can change different densities within the picture. You can make some areas lighter, some areas darker. Darker would be burning, lighter would be dodging. And we had a wholesale app, which meant we helped people or we serviced people who wanted a lot of pictures of their favorite image. 
And what that meant was if there was any burning or dodging by hand, I had to duplicate that 10 or 15 times. Ooh. You know, that hand work. And that was, that was very difficult. But after 10 years, yeah. <laughs> after 10 years of being in the dark room, <laughs> my partner, God bless him, he did everything else. He did all the hiring and firing. He did all the uh, computer work. He did absolutely everything except print. Mm-hmm. That was my job. And quite frankly, I enjoyed it because I was isolated. And during that 10 years, I got a sense of the aesthetics in photography, mm-hmm. of where things need to be, simplicity, isolation, focusing, not the focus of the picture, but what the picture is focused on, what it means. Mm-hmm. And after 10 years of that, I really, really got a good handle on what I think makes a good photograph. And to that end, after I sloughed that skin, I jetted off to UCLA because I had figured out I was going to be a screenwriter. Mm. I was going to combine two things, my background in English mm-hmm. and my love of the visual. I guess that means I am a screenwriter Wow! because that's what screenwriters do. They're visual, and they put it on paper, and they tell a story. But I found that that format was very confining. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way it works in, uh, in screenwriting, the way I understand it, uh, what I was taught at the university there, was that um, a screenplay needs, most of the screenplays need to be, at best, 120 pages long. Meaning, th- and, and the way they figured that was uh, one page of the screenplay equals one minute of film time. Mm-hmm. And most people like, can only tolerate about a two-hour movie. Two-hour movie equates to 120 minutes, equals 120 pages. And after that, it's fade to black. (laughs) And and the format was very restrictive. At page 30, something has to happen. At page 60, something else has to happen. Mm. At page 90, something else has to happen. And by the end, the entire story, with all its complexities, its plot, its characters, its themes, has to be ironed out and told the best you can. And I just found that very constrictive. And because of that, I was horrible at it. (laughs) I spent four months there, and I had a couple screenplays. And looking back on it now, they were basically pretty naive and childish the way I did it. And at one point, a guy said, well, you know this screenplay that you're trying to write? Have you ever thought about writing a novel? At the time, at, wow. the, at the time, I never gave that a thought. <laughs> I came back after after that stint, about ten years after that, I actually did start writing this novel, Alphonse.
You're listening to Easy Riders here on KRFC Fort Collins with your host, Carrie. Yes, and my guest, Carl. I think it's very hard to go to California without having like half a dozen people who already know you're coming and are ready to open doors for you in terms of getting your screenplays read. The only person that read that was my instructor and they were not very positive and I never shared any of those ideas with anyone, I don't think, because I don't think they were worth my four months there. I enjoyed myself there. My eyes certainly were opened, and it was a good experience. Mm-hmm. But but that's just one of those things that, that happened in life that you could say I did that, and you got this out of it, and now it's time to move on, and I certainly did. Mm-hmm. I could no longer write a screenplay than I could write poetry. Oh. <laughs> Actually... Some of your lines in your book, Alphonse, are very poetic, very literary. Oh, that's very kind of you. One of the things in writing this story was that I've been at it for 10 years, and I go over and over and over it, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, moving this around, moving that there. And having the, the story written over so many years, one of the things I found myself doing was paying close attention to the cadence of a line, that Mm -hmm. it had to have a certain rhythm for me, even though I may have added some words that were redundant, even though I may have added some words that weren't quite the correct word, if they sounded close and the rhythm was fine, in general, I elected to go for a rhythmic kind of line Mm -hmm. so that the reader would find it easier to read rather than, you know, a clunky a sentence, uh, elliptical phrases, things are hard to follow. Mm-hmm. I found that if you write, well, for me at least, if I wrote, if I paid attention to the cadence in the line, I found myself eventually being happy with the paragraph. Very good. <laughs> You're magic. I am a little bit magic. So what do we do now? Well, I wanted to say that one thing I noticed, my major was... English, and my minor was fine arts at Ohio State. Oh, funny you should say that, Terry. <laughs> That's yours? I spent six years at OSU. Go, <laughs> bu- go Bucks. Oh, Mike. Well, Woody Hayes? Oh, Woody Hayes. Oh, Re- rest his soul. Oh, my God. Were you there when he punched the photographer? Uh, uh, I, I, no, I was not there when he did that. But that poor man. As great a coach as he was, I think old age and it just caught up with him, and he just he just lost it. And mm-hmm. what what a shame! Uh, what a great career! But he ends it with punching a, a I think it wasn't even a, a fan. I think it was one of the one of his own players. Oh, was it his own? I think player? one of his own players. <laughs> he punched up because the kid wasn't doing what he's supposed to do. Oh, that's worse, actually. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Well, when I first came to Fort Collins and saw what they called their oval, I said, you're kidding. <laughs> Ohio State's oval is so magnificent. It, it is. Huge. With Arps Hall on one side, Mershon Auditorium on the other, and at the far end was this incredible library. This is a 10-story library, listeners. 
And you could I literally get lost in the stacks. There were books there that no one had looked at for like 50 years. And I was doing this great report on ancient masks. And I found so many wonderful things. I found so much stuff. I didn't have time to actually write the draft for my art history professor. And I went in and I told him, and he gave me extra time. <laughs> <laughs> You got, you got carried away. I did. It was so great. And, you know, back then, a Xerox printed <laughs> it backwards. It yes. was black instead of white with black lettering. Uh, it was, <laughs> was black paper with white lettering. Kind of the negative image. Yes, it was. It was crazy. Anyway, you were, when were you there? Well, let's see. I was there from 1965 through 71, 72 oh. in, that, in that frame. Remember the Char Bar? <coughs> oh, yeah, Char Bar. Remember Long's Bookstore? <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh, this is crazy. Okay, uh, I was there from, well, I wasn't there in 65 because I, I went to the junior branch at Marion, Ohio, which was night. Like, so you could work in the daytime and right. go to school at night. And so the first time I was actually on campus was the summer after my freshman year. And then I did the sophomore year at the branch, so that would have been 64 to 5. 66 was the first time I was actually on campus. And I graduated early because I went through summers and all. Uh huh. And I was teaching high school kids who were 17 when I was 21. I got one better for you. Okay. <laughs> Back then, folks, my age, that is 1920-ish, were caught up in the Vietnam War. And I remember very distinctly the riots on campus. Yes. Uh, it was on the Oval when it was announced that Kent State exploded. Yeah. And that was just bizarre. I smelt tear gas, pepper gas, lobbed in my face in my roomie house. And I uh, knew that the lottery was coming up. Uh, back then, they chose who was going in the military because nobody really wanted to back then because right. it's almost, you go to Vietnam automatically. But they did a lottery, and they go by your birth date. Well, there's 365 days a year, so uh -oh. so my number uh -oh. happened to come up, number 52. Oh, no. <laughs> and they predicted that it would go, the draft that year would go to 130-ish, somewhere in that area. So basically... If I was physically okay, and I would think I was, I was heading to Vietnam in my mind. Yeah. To avoid that, I had a couple options. I could go to Canada, which I had a lot of friends do that, or I could find a way to get a deferment from going to the Army. That meant to me becoming a teacher. Mm -hmm. I was a junior at Ohio State University <laughs> when I landed my first teaching job. Whoa. I, was a, I was a junior, and I taught elementary school kids, and I think it was everything. It was math, art, music, which I'm totally incapable of doing anything <laughs> musical. And I did the whole gamut, but I enjoyed it. But I was too young to really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know any better. To me, back then, it was a way to prevent me going to war. Yes, it was a means to a very important end. Yeah, and uh, so 
that started me in my teaching career. And I taught in Columbus, Ohio for five years. Hmm. And then I moved to Colorado, and I taught for five years in the Poudre District. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I taught at the Alternative High School, hmm. which eventually became Centennial, named mm-hmm. Centennial. But while I was there, that had, I think, four different names. Started out as the Alternative Learning Center, I think, and we didn't even have a diploma. So all the credits would transfer to the other three high schools. Oh, I see. Let's see, were there three high schools back then? No, there were only two high schools back then. And then Rocky came to be. I remember they were all up in an uproar about Rocky. Uh, you know, John Denver's song, Rocky Mountain High. Yeah, what a silly name for a high school. <laughs> I know it. <laughs> Actually, today, Rocky Mountain High might be more appropriate, the word <laughs> high, if you get my drift. Yeah. Yeah, they were worried about that, so. Anyway, wow, I can't believe this. We were at the same place at the same time. We may have passed each other on the Oval. We may have. (laughs) Well, I do remember a fellow who came back from Vietnam when I was doing graduate school. And I borrowed his gas mask to ride my bicycle to the library. Hmm. (laughs) Crazy times. Crazy times. I think back, what in the world was I doing (laughs) But I had to, I, I was a student. I mean, I, I had a girlfriend whose dad was a lawyer back in Marion, Ohio, where we were from, around there. Okay. And uh, she says, I'm not here to get an education. I'm here to change the world. <laughs> That's exactly the right attitude you should have when you go to college. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Every kid should have that attitude. I do know one thing about um, that time in the 60s, and I don't think that it's that way now, is... The war, so focused, not just the students, but the entire world, focused so clearly on the war and the outcome and who was right and who was wrong, that everybody knew where they stood. There was no nothing ambivalent about anything. There was no gray. It was black or white. You are for it or you're against it. And I think being that succinct, that clear, that clear choice, uh, made life simpler back then. You didn't have to, you didn't have to worry about what ifs. There was no what if. It was this way or that way. Mm-hmm. There was no maybes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I liked that simplicity. And back then, I remember, I had a purpose. Mm-hmm. I had a purpose because I had focus back then, and I had clear focus because my focus was clearly on only one thing, <laughs> and that was that damn war. Yeah. 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 Well. My husband uh, said he would like to go, before we were married, he said, well, I don't really want to go to Vietnam, but I'm willing to go into the Peace Corps. And they said, we won't accept that. He says, well, I'm willing to go to VISTA, which was like a, the American version, right. sort of. Right. And they said, we'll draft you right out of training of VISTA. Yeah, I, I explored those two possibilities. You know, it certainly beats uh, teaching when you're too young to teach. <laughs> <laughs> and it certainly beats hiding in Canada. Yeah. But it never played out for me, uh, mm-hmm. the Peace Corps. For whatever reason, it's just, they're very restrictive, and they really watch closely folks my age back then, uh-huh. uh, using that as an escape oh, from the yeah. war. Yeah. So, so during their interviews, that would be a very sure. strong thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I will tell you that it's been 30 minutes. 
Can you believe it? Don't even think about that. And it's time to talk about the book. Oh, okay. And I will tell you, listeners, that so many people bought Carl's book that by the time I got up to the counter, there were no books left. And so a lot of us had to order the book. And then we were waiting for a phone call, and finally the books came in, and I finished Alphonse on Saturday. And I loved it. I read it pretty much all the time. I never lost interest. I loved the characters. I know there were characters that we don't like and characters that we start to fall in love with, but that's what a novel has to have. And all the time you're rooting. You're rooting for certain people. You're rooting for Alphonse. You're rooting for Edgar's son. You're just... It's like you are stepping back into the 50s with them. That's the way I felt. So is there anything you would like to say about how you started the book? And then I'd have you read an excerpt. How I started the book? Well, that's hard to pin down for me because it started so subtly and so mm-hmm. long ago, it's hard for me to really recall exactly how it started. I do know that uh, perhaps 10 or 12 years ago, that there was some scandal in Boston. A cardinal there was, what was he doing? He was covering up the fact that there are many, many priests in his diocese that were proven to be perverts, for lack of a better term, sexually abusing young folks. Yes. And uh, I got to thinking, this was like in uh, 2010, 2008, I got to thinking that it's so commonplace now that we don't really give it much of a, of a second thought. You know, it's a sadness, but it's a fact of life. This stuff happens. But then I got to thinking what would happen if the same set of circumstances, the same child abuse happened in the late 50s when I was growing up. And uh, certainly it turned out it would have been a heck of a lot different than the way it is now. And my book is an attempt to kind of describe how it must have been back in the late 50s to either be a a victim of child abuse or be a parent of someone who is or be a very, very close of a person you're trying to protect. Yes. And that's what basically started me on writing the story, yes. Well, you did a wonderful job. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I love this book, and I'm trying to decide whether I should share with our listeners what's written on the back cover or whether you should read it to them. They're actually maybe more tired of my voice. to Easy Writers on KRFC FM 88.9 on your dial with Carrie G and Carl. Who's gonna love you when you're lonesome and blue? Who's gonna hold you saying sweet thing I do? Who's gonna help you make all of your plans? Honey, will I be that lucky man?
want me to? Oh, absolutely. All right. I will do it. The cover is beautiful. It has old shoes on the front with no laces. Shoes that have walked many miles, and you, after you read the book, you will absolutely understand what that's about. And it starts out after 20 years of riding the rails. Alphonse has earned a reputation for being a kind-hearted soul, always ready to help. When he helps the Sadler family, a young couple seeking a better life in small-town 1950s Indiana, he doesn't intend to stay, but stay he does, keeping a close eye on the Sadler family and their two young sons, and an even closer eye on the town's new priest, Father Brennan. On the surface, Brennan seems perfect for the job, but Alphonse crossed paths with him years ago in the rail yard jungle, and he knows better. Brennan doesn't recognize Alphonse, but Alphonse has never forgotten Brennan or his crimes. So when Brennan assigns this to Sadler's son, Francis, who is now 13, the thankless task of cleaning and maintaining the church's bell tower, work that often continues into the night, Alphonse immediately grows suspicious. Soon, he discovers that his worst fears have come to pass, and he races to find a way to protect Francis and reveal the truth to the Sadler family. And just this is enough to make you want to pick up the book and read it. Intriguing book. And I think Carl is ready to read an excerpt. Would you like to just give a little... A setup? Setup. Okay, I'll do my best to do that. (laughs) Uh, This excerpt I picked specifically because it, in a nutshell, explains what Alphonse is about, what he's trying to do, and it explains, also describes descriptively, how far Francis, this 13-year-old boy, how far he has sunk into his private world of self-deprecation and feeling worthless. And this excerpt hopefully demonstrates that, and it starts like this. This afternoon, it didn't matter to Francis that the Steinleys weren't home because the cat didn't belong to them. It had a weird black spot in the center of its forehead, so he would have recognized the cat if it belonged to anybody, but it was astray. Francis didn't feel the scorching late afternoon heat beating against his neck, didn't feel the sweat trickling beneath his T-shirt as he readied himself. The sky was crystal blue, and a little breeze danced among the leaves of the trees along the creek. Except for the water flowing quietly and the gentle fluttering of leaves, there was no movement in the quiet. In the smothering afternoon heat, out in the open beneath the white glaring sun, Francis crouched low with his arms and legs spread wide to block its escape. He moved cautiously forward. He had it cornered. It wasn't a kitten, it wasn't arching its back, and its hair wasn't raised on end. The cat was watching with curiosity as Francis closed in. The Steinies' enormous white house anchored the corner just across second from the high school. The bridge to the right of their porch was old and far too massive for such a small creek. Immense sandstone blocks formed the bridge's uprights. Decades ago, the stone had turned mossy in the Indiana humidity, 
Atop the green stone sat a red gas can. Unaware it was trapped, oblivious to danger, the cat sat casually with his back against the stone and was slowly blinking at saucer eyes when Francis finally lunged. In an instant, the cat sprang up, desperate for escape. As Francis grabbed it by the scruff, the cat turned teeth and claws, its efforts futile. With his arms fully extended, Francis's grip on its neck held firm. Stretching for the gas can with his free hand, Francis's face was empty of expression, his actions mechanical, and there was no hint of thrill, no sorrow, no fun. Cat and gas in hand, he ducked into the bushes that lined the overgrown creek. He pinned the bawling cat down with a knee. Eyes wide with fright, the cat hissed as Francis soaked it with gas. Mm. He used a wooden match. Wow. It was late, almost 4.30, and school had been out for nearly two hours. Across the street, almost finished for the day, Elphins had been sweeping a classroom when he saw the black smoke through the open window. The stub of his stogie slipped from his mouth as his eyes locked on the tiny meteor screaming across second. Hearing the high-pitched squeal of agony, he stood stunned by the window and watched the smoking cat crumble down before reaching the other side. Mm. Alphonse's mop handle banged loudly against the floor as rage propelled him out the school's rear door and across 2nd Street. He didn't pause at the cat, nor did he flinch at the smell of burnt fur. He charged and pushed aside the brush, finding Francis hunkered low, his back bowed, his eyes resting loosely in his hand. Christ Almighty, roared Alphonse. Francis slowly lifted his head, blinking rapidly as if waking. Alphonse, what the hell were you thinking? What? You tortured that poor critter. Alphonse kicked at the ground viciously, tiny stones pinned against the trees as they shot out from his boot. Critter? Francis frowned in confusion. You set that cat afire. Cat? The dead son of a bitch in the road. Francis needed to look away, but couldn't. And in that instant, shame screamed through every fiber for something he must have done wrong. Alphonse jabbed his knobby finger, pointing to the charred lump in the street. The gas can, the dead cat, spittle flew from Alphonse's mouth. The matches I can see in your goddamn pocket. Suddenly spent, weary, Alphonse stopped abruptly and took it all in. Francis's face, the slouch in his shoulders, the looseness in his body, and the cat lying dead in the street. Bewildered, he shook his head slowly, then sank to sit alongside Francis in the cooling shade of the bushes. Mm-hmm. And that's a turning point where Alphonse knows he has to be a huge support person for Francis. He has to be. Alphonse is all Francis had at that moment. And it's all Francis actually had uh, throughout his high school even. Alphonse was there. Francis's parents didn't even notice that until long afterwards. It took Alphonse to finally convince Francis's father to take a closer look at what, uh, the, take a closer look at the facts of what's really going on. Look at your son's behavior, said Alphonse. Look at it. At that time, Francis was way out of whack. Yeah. He was uh, abusing not only animals, he was abusing himself. And uh, he began losing track of time. A 13-year-old boy, even back in 59, 
I shouldn't act like that. It was apparent that something very serious was going on with that boy. And you wrote it so well. I appreciate you saying that. And I do not want to give away the whole plot or anything, but the way you had Alphonse help Francis back, that, to me, would have been really hard writing. And you did it. Congratulations. Thank you, Carrie. And since we have congratulations, I'd like to tell you that there are a lot more people who gave reviews to Carl's book, and I have a sheaf of them in my hand, and I'll just read a couple little things. One says, This book sticks with you long after the last page. The perseverance and determination demonstrated by the Sadler family, along with Alphonse, was inspiring. This is a book that will stay with you. Wonderful narrative, which honestly at times was hard to read. Yes, this book is so well written it draws you in. You feel that you are a resident in small town Indiana. You feel for the characters. You feel their pain. If you want a book that will have you emotionally vested, this is the book that will do so. Another one, uh, oh, this is a whole list. A wonderful novel, Carl Seaver, takes you with him to this small town in Indiana. You will become a part of the small family and experience, again for some of us, the late 1950s. I hope there will be many more novels from Carl Seaver. Another one, oh, it says, I cannot delve into my thoughts without revealing pieces of the plot. But Alphonse is a story worth reading. What an emotional powerhouse. This one was a heavy but completely satisfying. If this debut is any indication, I cannot wait for Carl Seaver's next book. See, the pressure's on. And there's more and more of it. I just have to say that I would really like it if you would sign my book. <laughs> You're silly. I'd be happy to do that, of course. (laughs) I've got the same as many people out there, friends and relatives and ancestors, who, because of today, have brought out their stories. And that's a healthy thing that they can finally share. And that's another thing Carl's book does. It allows people that hid what happened to them to come out and especially people from the past. Very, very important. So thank you for a piece of literature and also a piece of human understanding. Thank you, Carrie. I came in here nervous because I'm not one to be anywhere near limelight, and I really thought I'd be very uncomfortable talking on the radio. Thank God it's taped. (laughs) and Carrie can edit out some of my ums and pauses and stuff. But it's been, uh, it's not been bad at all. Actually, it's been very enjoyable. Uh, Carrie's made me feel at home. She's calmed my nerves. And Carrie's very generous with her compliments, by the way. And I thank you, Carrie, for this opportunity to share my story on the radio. Never thought it'd happen, (laughs) but here I am. Thanks, Carrie. You did it, Carl, and I love this interview. It's going to be really fun, too. I will tell you, it will be a very small amount of editing. 
won't take much at all. So I love getting to know you, and I hope I can follow other things that you're doing. And if you take some beautiful photographs, I might even get enough dollars to buy one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it won't be photography. Maybe it'll be sculpting. Ooh. Actually, I enjoy sculpting. I took a course at Front Range, and my big project at the end of the semester was making something out of cardboard. It mm. was uh, cardboard art, 3D mm. art. Mm. And my boot ended up being five feet long and wow. about four feet high. Wow. <laughs> and it took a ton of cardboard. But it's in, it's in my computer room now, and I see it every day. And occasionally I get the urge just to start making stuff, three-dimensional mm-hmm. stuff. Desperately, I need the shelter of your arms tonight. Oh, baby, I need you by my side. You're listening to Easy Writers. On KRFC FM, 88.9 on your dial. KRFC FM, Fort Collins. And I'd like you to know a newsflash that Carl got a call from the manager at Barnes & Noble who agreed to have a book signing on August 19th from 1 o'clock in the afternoon to 3 o'clock. His books are at Old Firehouse Books and at Barnes & Noble, of course, and on his website, which is cfseaver at comcast.net. That's Seaver, S-E-V-E-R. Thanks a lot. S-E-V-E-R. I don't know why Things go the way they do They just keep taking me down I can't deny I'm so into you And lost when you're not around If I could hold you I could let go of the pain But tonight I've got a heart full of rain And maybe it'll be a piece of sculpture. I don't know. That is very cool. I'll tell you one time. I was out of school by then, but I 
found this. This is in the old cars. Remember the big chrome bumper, but then sometimes there'd be two little pieces of bumper that stuck up, like in kind of maybe a lemon shape, like. Okay, this. yeah. Well, I took one of those and I had the uh, several branches that had started at the same place, so it was like a little crotch, and I turned it upside down, and then I put the stool on top of it. I mean, the the piece of bumper on top of it, so it was old, craggy. A lot of the bark was coming off the wood, mixed with chrome. And I just love that idea of old nature with new man-made right. piece as, as one thing. Right. And so that led me to making some jewelry the same way, where I'd use old wood beads that were kind of dried out, mixed with something bright and shiny, instead of modern, modern, Right. Here and old, old there, I'd put them together. Oh, sweet. And Good that, idea. that was really fun. And so I'm like you. And I have this really big problem with trimming trees now <laughs> because I see things in the branches, like a girl sitting or a person swimming. And so I save my branches. <laughs> <laughs> and the neighbors really don't like it. <laughs> because I well, uh, to me, art needs to function primarily only on one level, it must please the artist. Uh, and that's it. Anybody else views it or sees it or likes it is a bonus. Yeah. I do have two dreams left that I, I mean, I have little family dreams, but I would really like to do as you have done. I'd like to speak at a bookstore about a book I just wrote. And I would like to have some of my elm people, I have elms, so I have mm-hmm. elm people, Okay. be in an exhibit at uh, Lincoln Center. <laughs> Your goals are not that far away, maybe. I, I think it's possible. Everything's possible. I actually got a book published. Do you know how many titles oh. out there that are not published, that don't have covers on them, wonderful stories that don't have covers on them? No. Where are they? They're not published because they weren't lucky like I was. They oh. didn't have a Judy Brenneman. Ah. They weren't in the right place at the right time. These are wonderful stories. There's got to be hundreds of thousands mm. of stories written by folks that never see the light of day because they weren't as fortunate as I. Mm. And do you know how many titles out there that are actually published that shouldn't be? A lot. A lot of those, too. So I think I'm one of the luckiest guys on the planet in that regard, that I have found someone to take me by the hand, mm-hmm. and I found a publisher willing to take a chance on mm. my story. Very cool. Well, we have a little bit of time left, so I thought I'd read a story I just wrote. My most recent story, part of it is fiction and part of it is factual. It's called Child Prodigy slash Continual Wonder. We all think our children are wonderful, but I'd like to share a story about an even more unusual youngster who hasn't yet outgrown being spectacular. She was born to an ordinary mother who lived in a very plain house. She did have to be in the intensive care for a few days, 
but then was out to experience the world. She was quite still at first, then became extremely active and walked at a very young age. She was adopted by a family without a dad, but loved by a motherly young woman and her two daughters aged three and two. Sadly, and it seemed so very sad at first, they had to give her up because they really weren't there enough to give her the special attention her unusual talents demanded. So at the tender age of two and a half months, a van backed up to the young woman's apartment, took poor Reginelda away to a rural life and nightly incarceration. Oh, poor Reginelda couldn't understand why she must be locked up at night when she had discovered such glorious freedom during the day. She got to play and explore, meet three new friends who would play a bit, nap with her, jump onto logs, stumps, and turned over pails with her. She thought it was fun to dig a hole in the grass and not be punished for it. At night, it was a different story. An older woman would come with a long, thin branch and try to corner her. It was so frightening she cried out to anyone who would hear. She would be scooped up, deposited in a cage, and a spacious sun porch. She would be given a decent supper, then left alone. Reginelda began thinking about this. Nice in the day, cruel at night. Then one late evening she found out there was something out there in the darkness even more terrifying than a cage. It had big yellow eyes and it would look at her through the heavy glass sliding door of her porch many evenings after dark. One night the old woman didn't come after her with a stick. The scary creature appeared, attacked Reginelda, tried to grab her and choke her. She had cried out loudly, but no one had come to her aid. Later that night, the old woman found her huddled between two large pieces of plywood standing against the porch wall. She had cooed to her, and Reginelda had answered with the first four notes of the song, Lullaby and Good Night. Lullaby and Good Night, which the old woman thought was extremely odd because she had never sung that song to her. After that, Reginelda went to the sun porch door at 7 p.m. sharp every night. The old woman came out, opened the door, and let Reginelda walk in on her own. She began to use some logic in what had been happening all these nights. It came to her in bits. But now she realized that the old woman had been protecting her from a killer. Tonight, the old woman had been going over her books and fallen asleep. She woke up at about 8.30 p.m. and shrieked, Oh, Reginelda! and had run to the yard. No answering sounds greeted her. No movements in the bushes. Oh, my dear girl, she wailed. Then she noticed she had forgotten to close the sliding door and went to do so. There was Reginelda, perched on a cardboard box, waiting to go into her cage.
You are a wonder, Reggie. What a wonderful, intelligent, young, Rhode Island red pullet you are. <laughs> well, uh, I love that chicken. She was an Easter chick just four days old, and my granddaughter presented her two girls with these baby chicks inside a large chrome plastic egg, which they were only in a few seconds. And they lived at her house. Then uh, she called to say, come and get them. <laughs> we only had two. A raccoon did get one. And I didn't put her in the story because it just made the story too cumbersome. So I just went with one. And the thing I have learned, I thought that one chicken just wouldn't make it. They just would just lose it and become depressed and quit eating. And I'd find her just laying out there sometime. But since she doesn't have another chicken to talk to, she talks to me. And the amount of different cocking she can do. That's why I told you about lullaby and goodnight, which I know isn't the correct title. But she goes, cock, 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 cock. That's at night when she gets put in her cage and has uh, her chicken feed filled and her water filled and her little calcium shells sprinkled on top of her food like a fun topping. And you won't believe this, but her most exciting tonal differentiation she did for me was the tones from the spaceship on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, the four tones that the spaceship was trying to communicate to Earth. Ba, 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 ba. She did that. She did that with her little cocking voice. And I thought to myself, maybe you're so smart because you communicate with more than I think you are. <laughs> and with that, dear listeners, I will leave you. Please tune in again in two weeks. We'll have some more exciting things for you. Good night. Thank you for joining us today. Our theme music is from Lonesome Traveler, thanks to them. We hope we've inspired you to write at home. If you would like to send us some comments, our email address is easywriters at krfcfm.org. Stay tuned for jazz. See you in two weeks. And don't forget, Carl, you can order his book. There are links to IndieBound, Barnes & Noble, and Amazon. You can order directly through Old Firehouse Books. Links are on his website. Have a wonderful two weeks.